I've also got an event coming up on the 2nd of July, which is the Healed Parent. So it's for anyone who has been abused as children, mentally or physically, who want to do something different with their children. Welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Hello everybody, welcome to the show. This week I have an awesome conversation with Vicky Poole. Vicky is a life coach based in England and she has a really interesting philosophy around how we can learn from the past and implement the lessons moving forward for the rest of our lives. We had a wide-ranging conversation, and I found many of her thoughts and lessons to be very insightful. We also recorded at 6 a.m. my time, so the first few sentences I say are a bit croaky, but my voice gets warmed up before too long. <laughs> Enjoy the show. Cool, and we're live. Hello, Vicky. Good morning, good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Thomas, and yourself. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. My last day in Santa Fe, so life goes on, and it's a beautiful, brisk morning. Fantastic. Glad to hear it. For sure. So we came into contact because you have an awesome coaching business that is really getting out the message that no matter what happened in your past, it's never too late to learn and change and grow and, and change your outlook on on the world. Exactly. So maybe that'd be an awesome place to start and what are the things that influence you to get to that point, and what are the the core tenets of your coaching philosophy? Oh wow, uh, that, that that's a big double header. Uh, good question. It's tough, <laughs> by the way. Um, so I run a coaching business where I help people take their life from ordinary to awesome, and I one hundred percent believe that your past does not define your future. Your past is a series of events that have happened to you. You can't go back in time and rewrite them yet. But, you know, they define who you are and they give you experiences of where you were grown to to today. And I I grew up in the 80s in the northeast of England, somewhere below the poverty line. I don't want to state where, as if I'm honest, as a four-year-old child, you don't really know uh, too much about that. But I know that, that we were extremely poor. And I remember at the time, everything being based around other people's perceptions, so as a girl, the only girl in the street of my age, you know, if I wanted to go outside and play, I played with the boys and I could play cricket. I could play rounders, softball, volleyball. But the second a football came out, I was whisked indoors for sewing, cooking, cleaning, something really, really girly because no girl should play football and I remember having a conversation with my grandparents and only lesbians played football and that was somehow shameful. And by being different to other people, it would somehow bring shame on the family. And I was then coached, coerced, whichever word you want to use, into doing things and becoming someone else based on their perception. Now, as I grew up throughout my young life, I kind of developed this mask, which is the perception that was shown to the world. So I'm, for those of you who haven't met me yet or seen me online, um, I'm not a slight lady. I'm five foot 10. Um, I I can wear my husband's shirts and they fit me just, just perfectly. Um, and I used to play tight head in a rugby team. Um, I've always been incredibly strong. 
And whilst I was never allowed to go and play football as a child or even get involved with it at school, because my parents would find out and that would be shameful. I was, however, allowed to, to, you know, have free reign at a gym. And my dad, at the time, he was a very, very strong man. Um, he was training to be one of Britain's strongest men, or at least he trained with people who were Britain's strongest men. And, you know, I would quite happily go down to this sweaty, grungy gym, and I'd be welcomed there with open arms, and there'd be like me and one other woman there. So I kind of grew up as this as this interesting woman who can squat my husband. Um, he's 17 and a half stone. I don't know what that is in pounds or kilograms. So people can do the conversion in their spare time. And it's just, it's just me. And it took me until my mid to late 20s to actually be comfortable with the fact that I can be a woman and play football. I can be a woman and play rugby. And it's not shameful or weird it's just it's just me and it's who I am. And whenever I look at things that I wanted to change in my life, there would always be a breakdown moment. So for me, my biggest breakdown moment was when I split from my university sweetheart. We'd been together for years. We bought our own house. We had a cat. You know, when you write everything <laughs> down on paper, you know, we, we were bossing it. We both had good jobs. We had about two, two and a half grand a month disposable income, which was unheard of. We were going through a recession. It was 2009, not a lie, it was 2010, 11 when we split. And, you know, we both had good jobs. Mm -hmm. And when we split, I then realized that everything I had on paper, it was the, it was the, the happiness then moment. So when I have this, I will be happy. So when I have a when I own my own house, I'll be happy. When I when I'm earning fifty grand a year, I'll be happy. When I'm earning sixty grand a year, I'll be happy. And every single thing that I had written down, either as an individual or as a couple, we had, but I was still unhappy because I was always too busy looking for the next thing. But the next thing was never my description of the next thing. It was always someone else's opinion. Oh, you guys should get married now. Oh, you guys should have kids now. So those became the things that were on my list, but those weren't the things that I wanted. And because I'd been wearing this mask in various guises and various forms, I never really knew me. So as part of my, my freedom split from my university sweetheart, <laughs> I went on this huge sort of inter well interpersonal journey with myself, me, myself and I to actually understand what makes me tick. So anything and everything I did, I went skydiving, realized I hated that because I hate heights. Um, <laughs> what else did I do? I, I didn't mind being attached to a former squaddy and getting thrown out of planes. That was fun. The, actually... <laughs> <laughs> but, who, you know, who wouldn't like that, you know? Well, totally. He was sadly <laughs> married, but never mind. Um, yeah, so I did a ceramics class um, and I, I had my own ghost moment when you're on like the turntable and like you're molding your clay. Um, it was with another lady and she's one of my best friends now. Brilliant moment. And I went off and I did random things. I got up on stage again to understand me. And when I understood me and everything that I am, I then realized that I was setting off in the completely different journey of what my life should have been. 
And I then decided to make conscious choices. And this is where, this is where my coaching lies in. Mm -hmm. So my past is a series of experiences that have brought me to a particular point. I then see those experiences for what they are. And I then have the power and ability to then choose how I act. And when you, when you have that ability of choice, magic then happens because you're then able to create your future rather than just constantly relive your past and, and the cycle just repeats. And you can see this yourself in your own lives. So if you're constantly going for a, a particular kind of partner, it starts the same way, you have a very similar relationship and it always ends in the same way. How many more times are you going to repeat that cycle before you start realizing that you need a partner with a different set of attributes? And that's when you look for those attributes, you, you, you create that partnership, you, you create that relationship. But if you don't know what you're looking for, then you never actually find it. Absolutely. Wow. Well, beautiful. I mean, that that is the best introduction I've heard in my entire life. Good <laughs> <laughs> talk at you. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. There's a lot there. So first thing that jumps out to me is the potentially materialistic nature of those goals before you had this self-actualization moment. Yeah. Um, is that, do you, would you say that's valid that the, the kind of ideals society gave you were really rooted in, in physical things as opposed to something more internal? Yeah, very much. So I'm actually reading a book at the moment that I'm going to um, pull a little quote from. It's not my book. So it's called Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. And let me just find the page because I marked it. I marked it for you, Thomas. Um, Thank you. It's page 35. It's called The Big Picture. We seldom realize, for example, that our most private thoughts and emotions are not actually our own. For we think in terms of languages and images that we did not invent, but were given to us by our society. And that, for me, speaks wonders. Um, we send our kids to, to kindergarten or nursery, whichever word you want to call it, not so that they learn, but that they learn rules so that when they go to school, they know how to hang their bag in their cubby. They know how to do things so that the teachers don't have to teach them and they just teach them subjects. You look at sciences and English and maths as like the primary the primary subjects that anyone learns. Everything else is just just periphery. It's noise. If you're not good at English, science or maths and you're really good at geography or history, then you're somewhat shunned because you're not part of the, the cool kids, the smart kids. Our, our whole society is based on, on a commercial structure where those that tick the most boxes are rewarded the highest. Mm -hmm. And if you have any sort of query about that, just look at the way that sales teams work. I myself am a former sales exec. I've worked in telecoms and in software, and they work exactly the same. It doesn't matter how you make your number. If you make your number, you have your name in lights. If you're even 5% short, you didn't do everything that you could have done to, to get your number, not for the team, but for the business. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the second you have that money or the second you hit your goal, it's great. So you did 2 million pounds this, this year. Awesome. Next year, it's two and a half million so that everyone's pushing you in order to fail. And when you when you have that sort of drive, you then become incredibly materialistic because it's all about what gets the job done quicker. Oh, I've got a Dell machine. It takes six minutes to boot up in the morning because I've got updates. Get an Apple device. Ah, oh, awesome. I'll do that. 
get an Apple phone, you can communicate through Clubhouse. Awesome, I'll do that. It's so much quicker. We then kind of find ourselves just consuming technology and technology costs. Here in the UK, there was a huge uproar during COVID because a lot of a lot of families only have one computer. So how how when you've got three kids who are all at school, how can they right. do a nine to five at school? They just they can't. And the families where they've got say three like you know, three kids, but they each have their own tablet device. You know the wealthier sides of the families. You know they've all been excelling. So there's a definite parallel between education and um, and materialism because they support each other. And only when we actually break that cycle do we actually start to change the world. Mm. Awesome. The second thing that jumped out about your origin story, there are two things that really I found parallels to my own, my own personal experience. The one was around kind of finding a partner who serves, right? And I remember clearly the first time I was dating someone who made me feel beautiful and acknowledged my strengths and said, Thomas, like, you're a beautiful man. And, and I love these things about you. And these things are all so admirable. And it, it really completely transformed my perspective about, oh, <laughs> this is what a relationship is supposed to feel like. <laughs> and so that really resonated. You know, I think all the, there's so many examples of things in our lives that until we take the time to think about it and reflect on it, we'll never see these obvious things that are missing, right? Because if I was talking to a friend, of course I would say that friend, I want you to be with someone who makes you feel special and beautiful and on top of the world. But until that came to me, luckily, coincidentally in my own life, I didn't seek it out. And, you know, maybe you've had examples of that with your training too and coaching. And the, the other thing that reminded me of myself and, you know, hearing you talk about how you consciously sought various activities and different groups of people, different experiences reminded me of myself because I think almost my entire life I've been doing that random activities. I'm trying to grow into this sort of like a Renaissance man, a Renaissance type of person and have a lot of different interests and and ideals. And in that context of you explaining your own journey, I realized that I think maybe subconsciously I've been seeking that self-awareness and self-growth through those different activities, but I didn't ever have any tools to name it kind of as you just did. Yeah, that that's two really wonderful points there, Thomas. Yeah. When you're when you're looking for yourself, you get to know what you like and what you don't like. And when we know what we don't like, we then try to avoid it. And this work and this, and this is a parallel that can be used to describe um, how to find your perfect partner. So we can talk about both of those. So when you're when you when you're avoiding something, you're in a scarcity mindset. So if you here's a work example for you. So if you know that your key performance indicator, your KPI, the goal that you're going to be targeted against, is making ten phone calls a day or ten phone calls an hour. Once you've done those ten phone calls, you kind of relax because you've done the minimum key standard. If you've had one really great phone call that's lasted two hours, you're then going to be so many calls behind. But that won't matter to your boss because you're you're just you've got an, an arbitrary number. So mm-hmm. you can then act in like a scarcity mindset to just 
batter out the phone calls and you miss you miss fantastic opportunities is an example. So you're running from something. You're doing the very bare minimum and then going, ah, and running. (laughs) So when you're sick of running and it's the, okay, so what is the actual matrix? So if I make 10 calls an hour, I'm going to speak to see three decision makers. Out of those three decision makers, I get one appointment booked. Great. So if all I'm looking for is one appointment, then if I make one phone call, speak to one decision maker and get one appointment, that's my actual KPI. So I'm running towards my appointment. So everything is about that appointment rather than how many calls you make. So in a relationship scenario, it could be, oh, you know, I need a man or I need a partner who respects women. Now that is um, running away. So my partner Mm. should respect women is an attractive quality. So when you're out there and you're meeting people and you you listen to the language that that person is using and it's, oh, yes, they are respectful of women. And then you add, like, you go down the next attribute list. Now, when you're looking for for something as as life-changing and as long as a life partner and as as a soulmate, you -hmm. need to get pretty specific And I hold no qualms in telling people that I had four sides of A4 paper that would describe my husband. (laughs) He has all of those attributes. So on on the attribute, well, he's missing one. We'll come to the one attribute list he's missing. (laughs) We'll come to that one. But I'll I'll, I'll let him off on that one because he's a partial compliance. Um, But things, (laughs) things on that list where he must be comfortable with having strong women in his life. I had an exceptionally good job, so he must be comfortable with um, with the woman or with me earning more money than him. He must be comfortable in being, being he, he must be comfortable around kids because I'd always wanted a family. Didn't know if I was ever going to have one, but I knew that I wanted one. So then you have this list of what your perfect partner, if he if you could like make him out of clay and do a magic spell, this is what he would, these are the attribute lists he'd have. It was interesting that on my list, the one attribute that he didn't have is Dwayne Johnson's body. <laughs> he, but my sister-in-law, when we were um, sharing a sherbet, uh, otherwise known as a glass of wine, um, the other month, <laughs> and we were talking about my attribute list for her brother, she said, well, he has his hairline, so isn't that part of his yeah. body? So I kind of got to give him that one. That's massive, you know, nice, nice to have a full head of hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, that's a big takeaway for me as a young person, right? Yeah. Why not write out four pages of things I want? Yeah. No one's going to do it for me. (laughs) No one's going to make sure I end up with the person I need other than me. Well, yeah. And just by, just by knowing that list. And I mean, I used to read my list. So God's honest truth. I I started writing my list in August 2014. Um, I finished writing my list because you find things, you know, that that just keeps getting added to the bottom of the list. I finished my list over Christmas 2014 and I started reading my list daily in January 2015. And I met my husband 30 days later on January the 30th. God's Mm -hmm. honest truth. 
And, you know, we went out on our uh, on our date beginning of February. And, you know, I, I literally had in the back of my mind, okay, uh, right, that's that attribute list. And because I'd read that list so often, I knew what I was looking for. So he's comfortable using power tools. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm big up onto my own DIY. I built, I, I, I fitted my own kitchen, and I can nice. do my plumbing. I can do my electrics. Needs to be signed off here in the UK by a professional, but you know, I can, I know how right. to do my own electrics. Hell yeah, he, he's, he loves doing that. We, we do projects together in the house. We are a full partnership. That for me was important. That sounds pretty manly. For me or for him. For him, because I've I've heard you describe him as maybe not identifying as particularly masculine, but if he's eighteen and a half stone and and fixing up the kitchen, that sounds that sounds pretty pretty manly to me. Hey, my husband has a my husband. Okay, so you know, here's me sharing something very vulnerable. Um, I've always been told that because I'm so confident, I emasculate men. Mm. So having a man, having a partner, because I didn't know if I was, you know, going to find a man or a woman to spend the rest mm-hmm. of my life with, um, having a man that is comfortable in letting me be me and throw down the stuff that I need to throw down and let me kind of drive, whether it be in a relationship, whether it be a complaint over over the dinner that we've received or whatever it is, if he's comfortable in me doing that, then that's brilliant. Most men that I've met find that really um, emasculating. Martin, my lovely husband, in his response to that, he said that you can't emasculate a man who's not masculine. And he said that, and then he went outside to weld his car. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> he sounds like a gnarly dude. <laughs> He's pretty awesome. I have to, yeah. I have to admit, he's pretty cool. He, the thing that I'll say about my husband is that he doesn't recognize how special he is. And I think that's the same for a lot of men out there who are comfortable in curling up with a box of tissues and watching Love Actually and then running down to the gym, like literally running down to the gym and squatting, you know, 150 kilograms. You right. can be both things because women can be both things. In this age yeah. of equality, it's it, it's much more... It makes much more sense to have a partner who is true to you as a partner and you share mutual attribute lists and in a mutual life journey and destination, then then everything just falls into line, right? It doesn't matter who loves love, actually. By the way, that's my husband's movie. And we both love it. For sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I align with him in that, right? I mean, I have a feeling I have a podcast about the nuances of masculinity where we talk about our feelings. And then I also have a black guy right now. Cause I played a rugby match on Saturday. I'll paint my toenails and I don't give a shit. You know, I think it's fun and expressive and, but it's interesting. I would love your perspective on this. I, I was having a conversation on a different podcast about how we raise boys and how to, how to engender a healthy masculinity. And one of the things I, identified was just the the fragility of masculinity. And I used that example of myself because I am well-versed in talking about feelings. I drive these conversations in my personal life with my loved ones. I like to challenge people around me and myself to think about my assumptions and where those assumptions come from. But at the same time, you know, if you were to meet me within an hour or so, you would probably know that 
I play rugby and drink beer and lift weights. You know, so in my own self-examination, I'm asking myself, why is that? You know, why do I want to make sure that Vicky knows I'm also perceiving myself as a big tough guy and a big softy? You know what I mean? What is that? In my my answer is I think it's just the fragile nature of masculinity. It's because we we have to balance being perceived as the stable force, but also we want to show that we're multifaceted. I think you've actually just hit the nail on the head. You know, you want to be perceived as the stable force. Mm-hmm. So um, Steve Bitter, who is uh, an Australian author, he talks a lot about raising kids and, you know, the differences between raising girls and raising boys. Raising girls, you know, you know, you raise them to be strong and independent and free thinking. And raising boys, you raise them to be strong, independent and free thinking. The differences are... Is, is like how you as parents raise your kids. And this mm-hmm. I find truly amazing. And I do a lot of work with parents on this who recognize that their own, their own childhood is something that they want to change. But they don't know how to change that because they haven't had the experience. So they're looking for advice and guidance on it. And I'm so thrilled and privileged to be able to help those parents. And to raise the next generation of children, the next generation of boys and girls, it's about helping them understand themselves, whether that's being comfortable in talking about their feelings, whether that's comfortable smashing it out on the rugby pitch. It's gender neutral. The movement on equality has been happening since the end of the Second World War where women, I can only speak um, from my experiences here in, in England because I've only mm-hmm. researched my own family tree. My my maternal grandmother, she, well, my maternal grandfather um, survived the D-Day landings and my maternal grandmother made artillery and she used to drive the, the big wagons um, with finished ammunition to the ships to then be transported and flown um, over to Normandy. Wow. Well, yeah, huge, huge, huge independent woman. She, so she, she, her, her contribution to the war effort was significant. But she raised my mum to still fall in line with whatever the man wanted because it, it wasn't the right time yet. So my mum was born in the 40s and she, there were a lot of people at the time. So my mum went to school with other people who's, who had parents that didn't have a war effort. And they were very much, you know, like younger mums, like late late teens, early 20s, who didn't necessarily fight um, or serve in the war effort at all. And they were a lot more liberal. And it was about equality for women. Mm. And so when the gender movement happened here in the UK in the 60s and 70s, and, you know, women got the right to vote back. That's a different story, different topic. <laughs> then, you know, women started to gain ground. Now, there is an argument of how you describe the the ground that women have. Do you gain ground on the men or do the men lose ground to the women? It's pure perspective. If you're looking at something as a percentage, a man can go to university, a man can join the military, a man can fight the front line, a man can vote. So when you have like the tick boxes, you know, a man can do pretty much anything he wants. As a woman, there are still elements that we aren't able to complete. 
it's only been in the last couple of years here in the UK where you've actually been able to fight at the front line as a woman. And that's purely because of the change in times. So as the times are changing as an adult, you as parents then need to get your kids ready for their adulthood. Now, how do, how does anybody know? So my little man's two, maybe three this year. How do I know what the world's going to be like for him in 20, 30, 35? I have no idea at all. We'll probably all be driving electric cars. And that's that's as far as I can go with any sort of certainty. <laughs> well, how do I prepare him for stuff like that? Well, you prepare him to be free thinking. You prepare him to be mindful of other people's opinions. You prepare him to be able to engage in conversation, to recognize when he's got something wrong and have the courage to go, you know what? Hands up. I got that wrong. I see your perspective now. And I see that I was wrong. Those are attributes that men and women, boys and girls, should be learning. And going back to Steve Biddup's training, which I thought was genius, the one thing that he said across his training of raising boys and raising girls is the amount of time that that both parents spend with their kids. Mm, interesting. In, it was very interesting. So uh, raising boys, they're like rough and tumble play with their dad but also being able to have respectful play with their mum and sisters, if they have any, which I thought was interesting. And then the girls have rough and tumble play with their dad and respectful play with their mum, because then you kind of know that there's a balance of how far you can go with somebody. Although I would challenge that for Steve and say, you know, you would have rough and tumble play with a parent. I'm much more into rolling around, uh, very much like yourself, Thomas. I'm very much up for rolling around on a on a muddy, you know, rugby pitch, scrambling mm-hmm. for a, a rugby ball. Whereas my husband's not. <laughs> right, that makes sense. Yeah, to to push back on that assumption that it's going to be the man who wants the rough and tumble play, right? Yeah. When it could be not the man. Exactly. <laughs> That's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Schooled. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. In in our in our intro call, you gave an example I think that really highlights the the point you brought up earlier about repeating learned behaviors and how you your son was crying and you observed yourself and your behavior and, and you realized it was just a repeat of what had been done to you and how your parenting, oh God, yeah. how your parents had parented you. You know, if you, if you'd be comfortable sharing that one, I think that's a, that like for really highlights, I think for a lot of people, how easily those lessons learned from our parents can, can be passed on subconsciously. Yeah. Oh, wow. I thought I got away with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so my little man was about six weeks old, and um, he was a breastfed baby, and and I was feeding him one night, and for those of you who are parents, you'll know that when something comes in, something comes out, and my husband must have fitted his nappy a little bit too tight, or I'd fitted it too tight. Anyway, his nappy was too tight, and there wasn't enough space in the gusset to hold the amount of crap that was going to be expelled from his back end. And it it shot up his back like a roller coaster. Um, oh and and um, 
of course, as I was feeding him, he was curled up on my arm. So then I realized that I was then drenched in crap. And breast milk poop is, it's orange. It You'll never, oh my God. you'll never eat kind of like peanut butter smooth again it's it's definitely on the grim side so then i was it's two o'clock in the morning i'm exhausted he's going through his sleep regression i'm covered in crap he's covered in crap and all i can think of is how do i clean off my baby so i i strip him down i strip myself down and i hop in a shower now rugby club you know you never have any hot water so you're quite used to having cold showers so i didn't think anything of it my baby, he felt the cold water and he screamed and he protested and there was more bodily expulsions. And, you know, he, he was really giving it some grief. My husband, he could sleep through an, um, a nuclear attack, right? So he didn't <laughs> wake up through this at all. So I eventually kind of cleaned myself off as best I can, cleaned my baby off as best I can. And I take him through into his nursery. <clears throat> so baby is naked. He is cold after having a cold shower, and I then plonk him down on a plastic uh, changing mat, which is <laughs> cold because it's December here in the UK and it's like frost. So he he's miserable at the moment, and he doesn't understand what's happening. And I catch myself saying the same crap to him, a six-week-old baby, that my parents said to me, and it was something along the lines of, oh my God, if you don't shut up, your life's going to be miserable tomorrow and I'll make sure it is. And it'll just be more things and I'd just repeat them and it would be very, and I'd, I caught myself saying it and I'm like, this, oh my God, my baby's six weeks old. He was enjoying his food so much that he needed to make more space for it. And, you know, because of the way that he was, he 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 crapped up his back and, you know, I'm just being mean to him. So I put on his nappy and I, I snuggled him into my chest and he calmed right down. Even after all that, he still just wanted me. And I, I then kind of followed this process, which was, what can I relate to as a child of a similar situation? How did my parents act? How did that make me feel? How did I want to feel? And what would they need to do to make me feel that? Which is like a five-step process. And every time I catch myself getting short-tempered or frustrated with my son, I take a time out and, you know, I just stop. I don't say anything. I don't do anything. I let the cogs turn in my brain. And depending how much caffeine I've had, they, they turn at different speeds. And what I've noticed in myself as a, as a parent is that things actually change. So fast forward now um, about 18 months. So uh, we are in lockdown here in the UK. My little man's about 18, 19 months old. And I mentioned the word park. Now he doesn't, he's not speaking a lot, but he knows certain words. He knows food, nappy and park, <laughs> right? He knows those words. He's definitely my baby. And his shoes <laughs> didn't immediately go on and we didn't immediately get out the house. So he starts having a hissy fit because I've said the word park and he's not going. He doesn't understand. So I run very quickly through that five-step process. And then I realized what the problem was. He didn't understand what was going on. Mm. So I sat down cross-legged on the floor and I scooped him up and we had wonderful cuddles. And after about <laughs> two minutes, after about two minutes, you know, I asked him, 
are, are you finished? Do, are you ready to talk? And he said, yes, mummy, park. And I said, yes, darling, we go to park in two minutes. Mummy has two jobs to do before we go to the park. Would you like to help mummy do the job so we can go to the park faster? I would have been, you know, if I was honest, I would have been perfectly, uh, I would have done the jobs quicker if I was by myself, but it was, mm. a, it was a kind of bringing him in on what needed to be done. And when he understood that we were still going to the park, but there was something else that needed to be done beforehand so that we could go to the park and have more fun and be there for longer. He he was enrolled in what I was saying. He knew what was going to happen. Because for me, I I was always just told things. I was never, I was never explained why something was happening. It was just, no, you can't have a banana now. No, you can't go to the park. No, you can't. It wasn't because your grandma is on the bus and she'll be arriving in 10 minutes. She wants to see you. So no, you can't go out and play with your friends for six hours because she wants to see you before you go. Mm-hmm. It was just no. And that for me was the most hurtful thing because I think that stopped a lot of development. And it was only when I was a lot older that I got that. So now in every action that I do, I, I act with conscious choice. I evaluate the scenario and the situation and what's going on. Find an example in my own past that I can relate to. It might not be 100%, but I'm trying to get into into him and what's going on with him. And when I do that, we're able to speak at a completely different level. So yeah, I do that with my, with my son on a, oh, at least once a day, at least once a day. That's and awesome. It's, and, and it's a practice because sometimes, sometimes you knee jerk. Sometimes things are just going so badly wrong in your day that you knee jerk and you do something that you wouldn't normally do. And that's when parents think, oh, well, I've just done it one time, so I'll just fall back to my own ways. Well, the conscious choice involves a do-over, which is when you recognize that something's happening that you don't necessarily agree with, you can go back and say, Thomas, you know when I did this thing? You know, I want to go back and redo that, si- redo that situation because I don't think I acted in the right way or in the best way possible. And that's showing humility. It's showing that you yes. can be wrong and it is okay. Yes. Here's the kicker. Kids copy their parents. Kids mimic their parents. Kids copy their parents. They do it at school, at nursery, with their friends and in later life. And by being a a role model um, for my son and and by acting consciously, I hope that that's the greatest. Well, my aim is that that is the greatest gift that I give him. Absolutely. I mean, the story you just gave exemplifies some incredible qualities. One, vulnerability, right? Sharing a mistake, a perceived mistake, sharing something that you you caught yourself doing something you weren't happy with. And then course correcting. Yeah. And brings bring some awareness to it, bringing some consciousness to it and being able to talk about it and say, you know what? Yeah, I made a mistake. And then it informed my decisions moving forward. And you're, I think you're absolutely right about kids picking up these things from their parents and I've never been a parent, so I don't know the difficulties of it. I mean, that, that, that just sounds exhausting, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> trying so hard to be aware of what, what I do and say in every moment. Cause this little human is observing me, but I mean, I commend you and applaud you for taking on that challenge and caring enough to try. And, and you, you said it, you said it in every action you do, I mean, that sounds exhausting, but 
I, again, I applaud you because it's it's awesome, and I'm sure he's going to grow up and be a, a kick-ass dude for those reasons. Thank you. Um, the the act of conscious choice. I, I do a lot of work with my son because you know I've only been a parent for two and a half years. You know, I've I've you know, I'm 21 with 15 years experience. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, in in the working environment. So when I was in corporate, when I worked for companies you know, there wouldn't necessarily be an opportunity to digest a situation live in real time. You'd also have to do it retrospectively. And with my son, I have the opportunity to do both. The evaluating your your life of what's happening allows you to look back at your past to see why this is coming up because people repeat actions. And if you want a different outcome, you need to do something differently. Einstein once famously said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If you want a different result, if you want a life partner who loves and respects you, if you want a life partner who who takes you for everything that you are and simply doesn't judge, if you're looking for a career that is more than just a nine to five and it's something that you really relish and, and love and enjoy and completely aligns with your values, you need to know what those things are. You need to know what you're going for. And unless you write them down, unless you yourself know, you're going to be playing pin the tail on the donkey or in the States, I think you guys have a pinata that you beat with a stick. You know, you, you're never, you're never going to, you're never going to mm-hmm. hit like um, swing it and hit it with one hit and crack open the pinata and get the candy. It's never going to work. It needs constant, it needs constant realignment and course correction. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of like do a deep dive on every part of your life. Finances, huge topic, huge topic. Everyone wants to be millionaires. Why? Because you're going to have lots of money. What's lots of money? Being, <laughs> being a parent. I mean, I copied my parents. My parents were mentally and physically abusive. I stopped. Um, I stopped consciously becoming my parents when my little man was six weeks old because I saw the path that I was going down. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is just a moment to recognize and to stop and see the path that you're on. Because when you see the path that you're on, you can evaluate whether that whether or not that's right for you at that moment. If it is, great, crack on. Awesome. You know, I'll be there at the sidelines with the pom-poms cheering you on. <laughs> if you want something different, this is the time to act because tomorrow might never come. Yeah, that that, that financial piece leads very nicely into the next question I was going to ask you because as someone who grew up without a lot of money and then you went on to exceed in the the pinnacle of our capitalistic society's fast track to making money sales do you have any observations on the nature of money and the pros and cons of pursuing it as someone's main main goal in life oh wow uh, and I ask for context because for, in the masculinity piece, that's one of the things that we're conditioned to chase and go go after is money, 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 money. Yeah. <laughs> um, you probably want to get my husband on your podcast um, because he doesn't chase money at all. Um, he's a very he's a very humble man. Um, but in response to your question about chasing money, you will always spend what you make. Whether I, I remember being on minimum wage, um, and at the time it was I was like sixteen, seventeen in the UK, which was like three pound ten an hour, and I managed to spend three pound ten. I managed to spend every single penny that I made. I saved some because that was like aim, 
But every single penny that was left in my main bank account, I saved. And actually, it was it was at that age when you started going out, because here in the UK, you can drink when you're 18. If I had 100 quid in my bank account, I would spend that. So I took the I took the initiative at a very early age to have two bank accounts. And I always paid myself an allowance. And my allowance, in inverted commas, is a value that I live on. And I still do that. When I was raking in 100 grand a year, that's what I was doing. I was still giving myself the same allowance. And the more money you make, the more money you want. So I um, I got promoted from desk-based sales support into a client manager role, which was like I, I, I leapfrogged a position. Mm-hmm. And I went from being a grunt to being on 35 grand a year with a 10 grand commission. I obliterated the role and moved into a 45 base with a 45 commission. So I was 30 and on 90 grand a year. And I just kept earning more and more money. One of my 90,000 quid too, which is a very strong currency. Yeah. So what's that? Like $130,000 or something? Yeah. It depends on the year. Usually it's around 1.3 to 1.5. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I was like 28, a lot of money. And I, I banked most of it. I paid cash for my wedding. Um, I'm sitting in a half a million pound house. I'm able to pursue my life's passion and to, to help people just like me and not have to worry about my finances because I, I banked everything at an early age. Now, when I was running through my corporate life, I was always looking for the BBD, bigger, better deal. Which company was going to pay me more money? What was the commission plan like? Could I could I realistically earn two hundred grand that year? If I couldn't, then I was and I had the eye on the door. I was always looking for the bigger, better deal. And when you're when you're in a partnership with somebody, it does make sense for one person in that relationship to be the the main financial earner. And in my relationship with my husband, it was me. So he used to do the dry cleaning, the food shopping, the cleaning at the kitty litter. Yes. Um, <laughs> he used to do all of the domestic work because I was working and I was pulling 60, 70 hour weeks in order, to, in, order, in order to bring in the money. Fast forward six years and we now own our house outright. We're not going on holiday to the Maldives or any like luxury destination, but you know, it's post COVID. Who's flying anywhere at the moment? Look, I'm looking at you right now. You seem calm. You seem centered. The birds are chirping. You're loving it. <laughs> Can you hear the birds? Yeah, these are um, sparrows, house sparrows and Spanish sparrows. They are um, up my bird feeder. So just outside the window. That's what's up. So I guess what I'm hearing is that, yes, money is important. And yes, money is necessary to achieve the lifestyle that we want. But you made a pivot and a conscious choice to essentially build up a nest egg and have enough to be sustainably financially free, but you're now not grinding 60 hours a week. You're having conversations with Thomas on the Bro Nouveau podcast. Well, exactly. (laughs) I spend my whole day having conversations with people and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And Awesome. And the thing that I would say to everybody is to invest in your pension. So if you start when you're young, you only need to do it a little amount and keep a, um, a separate fund aside for we call it a rainy day fund here in the uk i don't know what that translates Mm -hmm. to in the states 
But when you have any um, like big one off bills that come in, like say you need to replace your car, you need to have your car insurance, your tax insurance, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, or you're moving house. If you don't have that money that you can put your hands on, you feel a lot of stress. So it's a stress management technique to just, you know, put 50 quid aside every month. And over the course of the year, that's, you know, 60 quid, um, 600 pounds. If you need, say, six grand, then you put 500 quid a month away. Mm-hmm. So budget how much you need to support your life. And that then just removes any sort of pressure and any spike because you've got the cash to put your hands on. And that, for me, was a learning that I took from my parents, which was always have a nest egg. Mm-hmm. Because in the 80s and the 90s, you know, huge recession, you weren't guaranteed a job next week. So you always had to have some money to put your hands on. And it's something that's still very valid for today. Very valid for today. 100%. A lot of people in the world today, a lot of men in particular, feel the pressure and need in order to be able to support their family. And whether or not they pay or or they get their salary paid into a joint account or to separate account or their own account, they have the freedom and choice to distribute that money. It could go to their children's education, could go to their nest egg, it could go to a pot. And the most valuable thing that any single person can do to support their family is to take actions to support their mental health. When you lose your job, the first thing that you go to is, oh my God, how am I going to support my lifestyle? And when your lifestyle is, say, a thousand bucks a month and it's going to take you six months to find a job of equal pay, you know, have that as a nest egg. When you're going through significant change in your life, being able to keep some element of normality is so hugely invaluable in order so that you can keep doing the stuff that you love. It's only when you realize that things aren't going to go the way that you want them to, that you should start stripping back. I'm mm-hmm. by no means a financial advisor. I look at mental health and work on people on their on their emotional states very, very regularly. And the one thing that I've seen here, particularly in the UK during COVID, is people who've lost their jobs and they cut back on everything immediately. And yeah. it it just zaps them. They then have no energy. It comes across an interview so they don't get the job. Right. And yeah, then, seriously. And then it becomes a self-proliferating spiral. Mm. so look after yourself do it little do it often the best things in life are really simple and they don't cost a lot that's right paddling out for a sunrise surf Ooh. <laughs> yes that's, i love i love surfing is free man just get a board and a suit depending on where you are in the world awesome vicky well thank you so much for sharing and your incredible insights for all of us we're going to move to the last segment of every show the three things game oh cool yeah, so so which month is your birthday in? My month is in September. September. Okay, I'm up first then because my birthday's sooner in August. Here's my question. Oh, this game is crazy, man. Okay, this is my question. What are three things you have learned from men? <laughs> I'm telling you, this game is magic. Number one lesson would be to not take myself so seriously because as men, I think we're really encouraged to be really serious and stoic all the time and i'm a man and i've learned that i'm a silly goofball and that's cool and that's you know that's how i like to do it i like to be loosey-goosey and make people feel good and smile and laugh number two would be around in my observations men need a great partner whether that's another man a woman someone elsewhere on the gender spectrum but 
a lot of the men I've seen and read about and learned from appear to have stable partnerships. And the lesson there for me is just that, you know, you can't really go at it alone your whole life. And it's okay to offload some of those vulnerabilities and challenges to take on the world with, with, you know, with a partner as a, as a good thing. And number three is that men need to speak up is my, is my third lesson. The reason I'm doing this is because there's a lack of content out there encouraging men to grow into the person they want to be and not just take on the, the conditioning of society. So I guess it's kind of an inverted answer of by seeing a lot of men not talking about things and not being able to verbalize their feelings and not calling each other out. My takeaway is the opposite, is that it's important for men to speak up. I agree. Awesome. Okay, I'll, I'll hold up your uh, your question. Okay. What are the three things you have learned about success? Okay, interesting question. So success for me is always what you define it to be. Number one, when you're aiming for a success that that you personally don't want, then you never strive to achieve it. So when you're when you're working towards someone else's expectation, you never right. strive to achieve it. Number two, um, when you've achieved your success, people very rarely sit and enjoy the success that they've achieved. So it's very important to, to sit there and to do that. So don't fall into the trap of I'll be happy when I buy a house, and then I'll and then I'll be happy when I've got aircon, and then I'll be happy. You've just bought a house. Sit there and enjoy it and plan what you're going to do. Relish the moment of that success because that that's going to be the that's going to be the fuel that's going to keep you going. Mm-hmm. And number three, number three, a slight subtlety on number one, a slight subtlety on number one, um, which is only your successes matter. Now, um, from a from a personal development perspective, a lot of people, particularly men around the world, have a, a false degree of confidence because they emit this sort of air of confidence around themselves in the business and the workplace, mm-hmm. and people tell them that they do a good job, but they don't recognize their own achievements and, the, and their own successes. So your successes are unique to you and take a moment to to actually recognize them. So look back at your past and you went to university, um, you graduated with a master's degree, you were there for the birth of your children, you know, whatever your successes are, they are personal to you and remember them and, and own them because when you get those moments of self-doubt where you kind of get that pang of a drop in your confidence those are the things that are going to keep you going. And for those of us who keep a successes list, we find, or I find, particularly with my clients, that their successes, then they excel and they just keep going because they know their boundaries of what they're able to achieve. It's a confidence booster. Awesome. Great answers. Vicky, thank you so much for your vulnerability and your wisdom and your humor. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Thomas. It's been lovely speaking with you and your following. Absolutely. Where can the good people find you online and find more about your coaching and your, your services? So I'm vickypoolcoaching.co.uk. All of my details are on there. I've also got an event coming up on the 2nd of July, which is the Healed Parent. So it's for anyone who has been abused as children, mentally or physically, who want to do something different with their children or they want to act, they want to bring that choice Um, into their life so I've got 10 amazing speakers from all around the world 
and that will be um, connected this week as a link from my website so people are very welcome to to join me there it's going to be awesome awesome i'll definitely link that one on my own socials too because that's very important cause and conversation awesome thank you thomas thanks vicky there you go folks massive thank you to vicky what a legend for anyone out there who experienced abuse as a child and wants to break the cycle in their own lives her workshop is on july 2nd head over to her website to check it out and for anyone who listens to this in the future you can still head to her website and get some of that great content if this is the kind of personal work that you are interested in doing Thanks, folks. We'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau podcast.